Hey guys, welcome to week two of our series, Esther, and we're just going to wrap up. This is just a short two-week series, but what we did is we walked through uh, about four chapters of the book of Esther last week, and we're going to do the same this week, and it's been really fun to look at this book. We talked about this last week, but Esther's a really interesting story because uh, the book itself was actually, a lot of people disputed whether or not it should be in the Bible. And one of the main reasons is that it's um, not spiritual really at all. It doesn't really talk about God. It talks about Esther, this prominent woman who becomes uh, queen, and she is a part of the the nation of Israel. She's a Jewish woman. And so this is why it's included in the canon of scripture that, that we have today. And it's, it's just an incredible story with practical lessons that we can learn about. There's four main characters, uh, Esther, who is now the queen, Mordecai, her cousin, who's a nobleman, Haman, who is kind of the, the right-hand man of the king. He's one of the king's nobles, but he's an evil man who has set out to destroy the Jewish people because of a slight that he has felt from Esther's cousin Mordecai because he won't kneel to him as he walks by. And then King Xerxes, who's the Persian king. He's the ruler of most of the known world. And uh, last week we talked about several different things, but two of the things that we talked about were this, is that God places us where we didn't know we needed to be. God places us where we didn't know we needed to be. Esther did not know why she was where she was. But the opportunity presented itself, the reason presented itself. And we talked about this phrase that Mordecai uses. They said, maybe you have reached this royal position for such a time as this. And so we talked through that, and we talked about how God will be out in front of us, that he's working before we're in the situations that that we find ourselves in, that we can always find confidence that we have a God who goes before us. And then secondly, we talked about uh, this question, what are you willing to stand for? That in this culture today, because we don't face persecution very often, because the persecution that we may face isn't life-threatening, typically, uh, we really don't stand for much, that that there's not very much that we're willing to to put our feet on the ground and say, no, this is something that I'm not willing to budge on. And, And we talked about all of the intricacies of that and how there are little things that we need to be able to to move around and, and have conversations about. But when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is something that we're willing to stand for always, that that is the hill that we are willing to die on. And so this week, we'll pick back up in chapter five, where Esther is preparing to risk her life to beg for the lives of the Jewish people. Haman had been given the signet ring of the king. He could pretty much make any decree he wanted without even talking to the king. And he had made a decree that all Jewish people would be killed on a specific day in the near future because of Mordecai's unwillingness to kneel when he walked by. He didn't want just Mordecai to feel the pain. He wanted all the Jewish people to feel the pain. So Mordecai hears about this. He pleads with Esther to to in turn plead with the king to spare the lives of the Jewish people. And so we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, as Esther is preparing to go before the king. And she understands two things, that there was only two outcomes that could happen in this situation. One, that the king could be pleased with her and invite her in and have a conversation with her, or because she hadn't been summoned by the king, he could actually execute her. So we find ourselves in Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through Three. On the third day, this is the third day that Esther and Mordecai had been fasting, Esther put on her royal ro- robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you." So the first point is this, fear replaced by faith. Fear replaced by faith. There had to have been so much anxiety on Esther's part as she was stepping into this situation. She was about to put her life on the line with the ruler of most of the known world and his will, 
And at his will, he would either listen or he would execute her. So like the humanity of this, you just know that her stomach was in knots, that, that she was so nervous, that she was scared about what she was about to have to do. And we can only imagine how many things were going through her head as she prepared for this. However, we have to remember the fact that Esther asked Mordecai to fast for three days and she did the same herself. And it wasn't just about not having food, it was about praying. So she was prayerfully preparing. And I think it's really important that we are people who prayerfully prepare so that as we step into situations, even if there is fear, even if there is anxiety, we would be certain that God is with us, that we would do everything that we can to hear the voice of God and to put ourselves in the best possible situation. And I think that this points to something significant, that faith isn't a feeling, Faith is taking God at his word. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith is taking God at his word. Here's the thing. Too many of us have treated faith with an emotional fragility that hinges on how we feel in a specific moment. And I know that I have been so guilty of that, that, that it's all about emotion. It's all about how I'm feeling that day. And my Esther seems to, my Esther, my, my faith seems to ebb and flow like Esther's probably was that moment, that, that there's this, this point where we just, we feel like everything is, is dependent on how our day has been going instead of dependent on the fact that we are secure in who God is. You see, Esther demonstrates a faith that moves beyond feeling because what she was feeling was undoubtedly some fear and some anxiety about the moment. She was nervous. But what she also knew was that God said that the Jewish people were the chosen ones from which the Messiah would come. Earlier on in this book, Mordecai says something to Esther and he says, uh, maybe you were raised in such a noble position as this. And, uh, and he, he talks through that, but then he says something else. He says, if you are unwilling to do this, deliverance for the Jewish people will come from somewhere else. You see, he was certain of something as a faith-filled man. He knew that the Messiah was going to come through the Jewish people. And so he he wanted to remind Esther of that. And Esther took that at, she, she had so much respect for Mordecai. And last week we talked about her getting around wisdom and how Mordecai was wisdom for her when she didn't have wisdom herself. And so she believed him when he said that deliverance will come for the Jewish people. So if you don't do it, it'll come from somewhere else. But she wanted to be faithful and she wanted to be who God had called her to be. See, Esther was taking God at his word in that moment that, I know that God said that this will happen. I'm going to take him at his word, so I'm going to be a part of the solution. You see, we cannot be people who are more dependent on human emotion than divine purpose. We cannot be more dependent on human emotion than divine purpose, that we always have to put divine purpose in front of our emotions and say, no, God wants these incredible things to happen, and God has laid out these plans, and I believe that those plans are going to happen, and I'm going to put my emotional feelings uh, in, in the back seat so that those things can come to fruition, hopefully through me. We need to take him at his word. He has and will speak promises into our life, and we need to hold on to that. So now I want to do spark notes of, of this next, of, of the back end of chapter five. See, Esther goes on to ask the king to a banquet, and then she invites Haman, this man who wants to kill all of the Jewish people as well. She hosts them, and, and they have a great time, and then she asks them to come to another banquet the next day. And Haman leaves just jacked because he, he's like, I was the only guest at this banquet. And now I've been invited to a second banquet with the king and queen. Like how, how amazing am I? He, he's living on a cloud. But then he passed Mordecai and Mordecai still will not bow to him. And so he gets mad all over again. He goes home. He talks to his wife. He talks to his advisors and they tell him to build a, a, a 
spike, a, a pole that is 50 feet tall. It says 75, or sorry, 50 cubits, 75 feet tall, and to impale Mordecai on it, to go to the king and say, I want, I want to do this. I want to impale this man because of the way that he has disrespected me. And he, he's so excited about what that means. He's so excited about the opportunity to do that. He's He knows that for him personally, this is going to be a huge victory. So we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The king, uh, sorry, the night the, that night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles. This is the night between the first banquet and the second banquet, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. So what I love about this specific set of scripture is that we never find Mordecai calling for recognition. In fact, he saved the king's life, but his worry was for the people of Israel, that that his own self-interest had been put to the side in the interest of the Jewish people, that he wasn't pleading for recognition. He was pleading with Esther to go and beg for the lives of the Jewish people. And I absolutely love this. It wasn't about his own position. It was about the good of all people. So the next point is this, is let recognition come when it comes. Let recognition come when it comes. In this story, Mordecai displays a level of humility that I wish that I had. I would be making a freaking ruckus trying to get recognized for saving the life of the king, especially if my cousin had been raised to this position of queen. I'd be trying to find noble position. I'd been trying to find all kinds of recognition. But no, Mordecai understood that if recognition was going to be had, it would happen when it should. And what I love is that God's timing in this story could not be better. That Mordecai's patience and Mordecai's understanding of what mattered the most is used in this beautifully divine way. And while it's not super spiritual, we still see God's hand all over it. Esther chapter 6 verses 4 through 10 go on to say this. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe and the king was worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man with the, that the king delights to honor and lead him on through the city, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once. The king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. Pride is the beginning of destruction. Pride is the beginning of destruction. The irony in the story is absolute gold. Who is there that the king would rather honor but me? Haman is walking around with his chest puffed up, and he's so excited about being honored by the king. His pride gets the better of him. And as I read the story, I just shake my head at like stupid, silly Haman, and I have a smirk on my face until I realize that I have been in that situation too, that I have been so prideful and so in search of recognition that I have absolutely looked ridiculous. I've never wanted to impale someone or asked to be taken through billings on a horse with someone declaring how amazing I am, but I have had so much pride just to look like a fool. And maybe you have too. 
And while there's nothing overly spiritual about this section of the story, I think that it leads us to a question that we need to be asking ourselves. And that question is, what are my motivations? What are my motivations? Is my life dedicated to things out of self-interest, or am I operating in the interests of others and in the interests of God? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's this simple call on our lives to love God and love people. Love God and love people. It doesn't talk about self-interest. It doesn't talk about having pride. It doesn't talk about any of that. It just talks about love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we need to be people who put that at the forefront of our entire livelihood, that that is what we operate under. What's in it for me should be a phrase that never comes to the forefront of our minds. And our humanity fights against that, that in specific situations, we find ourselves helping people with with the expectation of something to be reciprocated to us, whether it's something as small as like, I'm going to help this person move so that when I have to move, they have to let me use their truck so that that I, I have something to ship ship my stuff around with. Or we we just put ourselves in these relational like tug of wars where we're like, okay, I'm going to do this for you and then you're going to do this for me and you're constantly pulling back and forth. But the expectation should never be out of self-interest. It should always be, I'm going to love God and I'm going to love people unexpectedly. It's going to be extraordinary the way that I love people, but I'm not going to have expectations of other people because it's not about what's in it for me. It's about me just loving them for who they are and who God created them to be. When we start to only think about ourselves, we lose perspective. And and more often than not, we end up looking really dumb. We end up really looking really foolish because our expectations of other people and all of the things that, that we put on certain situations leads to our pride. It leads to all, all of those things. And then our pride begins to, to just destroy us in so many different ways. So Haman has to walk Mordecai, the man that he wants to kill, through the streets himself on horseback, clothed in the king's robe, and declare in front of the entire city, this is the man the king delights to honor. So he goes home embarrassed, and and he is wrecked, and he talks to his wife again, he talks to his advisors again, and they said, you are about to ask the king if you could impale Mordecai on this 75-foot tall pole you need to get out of that. You need to backtrack. You need to figure out how to get out of of that situation. But before they can actually talk about a plan, the king's men show up and they they whisk uh, Hamon off to the second banquet with Esther and King Xerxes. And so we'll pick up in Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. It says, So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet... And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. She says, spare my people. This is my request for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. So the next point is this, identify with and advocate for. Esther could have kept quiet about being Jewish. She she could have hidden that fact. Yet she didn't. She She could have kept it safe and watch others be persecuted, but she didn't. She identified with 
the, her, her people. And, and then she started to advocate for her people. And I, I just love that so much. And while racial eradication isn't something that you and I will hopefully have to deal with ever, we will still have opportunities to advocate for others. And our opportunities to identify with others will go beyond the physical and it will go into the spiritual. Our opportunity is to stop talking about them and start talking about us. That, that we would lose the us versus them mentality and we would just start talking about us. I was having a conversation with someone that I, I have so much respect for, so much honor for, and, and we were having a conversation and they said something about, um, Evan, this is a battle. This is a battle. We are in a battle. We are in a battle with culture. We are in a battle to to bring the kingdom of God. We are in a battle. And we just kept using that. And that's been a phrase that we've used in the church for a really long time. And while it's true, I think what we fail to understand is that our battle, our war, isn't against other human beings. So there's not a single person on this earth that I want to go to battle with. My battle is against the rulers and powers and princes of darkness. And it's a spiritual battle because what happens is if we start to look at everything as a battle, then we have to start drawing battle lines and then you have to start choosing sides. And when I choose sides, I I fail to love people the way that God has called me to love them. And if you don't follow Jesus, this, this next part, it doesn't really pertain to you, but I still think you'll hear it and I think that you'll be on board. As followers of Jesus, we are called to advocate on the behalf of lots of different people and to a lot of different people and establishments. That that includes the church, that sometimes we are going to be advocating for the church. We're going to say, no, this is what the church believes. We are the church, and we're going to be moving. And, and whatever it is, we're, we're going to be advocating on behalf of maybe our specific church. But I think that what's really important is that I am not a follower of Faith Chapel. I'm not a follower of College Age Movement. I'm a follower of Jesus. And while I love my church and I love this ministry, my primary goal is to honor Jesus. And if Jesus isn't at the forefront of everything that I'm doing, then I'm going to get myself in trouble. So as followers of Jesus, we have to advocate for people, to people, and to the establishment. And sometimes that's to the church too. The church hasn't always done a great job, whether it be race or religion or sexual orientation or lifestyle or gender identification, whatever it may be. The church hasn't done a great job at loving people. But you know what? Race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identification, lifestyle, all of that equals one thing. Messy, broken sinners, just like you and just like me. And I can identify with that. I can identify with being a messy, broken sinner because that is absolutely what I am. And while we may not agree with or advocate for all actions or all decisions in people's lives, we can always advocate for the people that are involved in the situation. I might not agree with you. I might be on the complete polar opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to your political thinking or your theological understanding or whatever it is that you've made a decision in culture, but that doesn't mean that I can't love you. That doesn't mean that we can't agree to disagree. That doesn't mean that I can't still show Jesus to you. And we need to understand that it's not our job to persecute people. Our job is to love people. Our job is to get people close to Jesus and let God do any convicting that he needs to do. But, but my job's not to convict. And we always have to understand that we need to advocate for people. We need to identify with them. And we can all identify as messy, broken sinners who are in need of an incredible Savior. My prayer is that we are known as a community of people that constantly present the case for loving people extraordinarily. Extraordinarily. That people would see our love and they would see our grace and they would see our mercy and they would see Jesus. So the last set of scripture that I want to read is 
Esther chapter 7. Verses 5 through 10, it says, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. And you know, like Haman's face is just like, oh no, like I'm so screwed. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. You know, he's mad because he left his wine behind. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall. Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Horbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had, he had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, then the king's fury subsided. <laughs> While Haman thought thought that the, the, the pole and the, and the execution of Mordecai would bring him joy, it ended up being his demise. His self-interest and pride led directly to his destruction. You see, Haman was selfish and Esther was selfless. And it's really important for us to understand that the difference between that and to understand what outcomes will happen. When we are selfish, it, it, we will just be so focused on our own self-interest that that it'll lead to our destruction. But if we are selfless, if we always have others first, we will find ourselves in really great positions because we are making sure that other people come before ourselves, that we are loving God and that we are loving people in incredible ways. So what I want to do is this. I want to end, I want to land the plane, so to speak, with two questions. The first one being this, where is pride present in your life? You might not identify as a very prideful person, but all of us have pride in specific areas of our lives, whether it be our vocations, our relationships, our families, whatever it is, that there's pride present and we need to identify it and we need to kill it. We need to get rid of the pride, the rid of the selfishness and stop being start being selfless so that people will see Jesus through the way that we act. And then the second question is this, what is a tangible way to put others first in this season? It's really easy to throw out these blanket statements and say I'm always going to put others first in my life by doing this. And we start to think in these big grand scales. But I want you to specifically think about this season, the specific season you're in, whether, whether you're in school, what, whether you're in a job right now, whatever your family situation is right now, what is a tangible way, a practical way that you can put others first in your life? Because if we can kill pride and we can put others first and we can start to live like Esther, we will be these selfless people who are showing the love of Jesus on a regular basis and the kingdom of God will be so much better because of the way that we live our lives. And while Jesus is the perfecter and the author of our faith, we still get to play a part in introducing him to the people around us. So let's make sure that we are doing that. Thank you so much for tuning into the College Age Movement podcast. Again, if you are in Billings, we would love to have you here in person. Tuesday nights, 7 o'clock at Faith Chapel. We want you to get plugged into community and family. If you're not in Billings, we hope that the podcast continues to be something that you learn from, that you get uh, fruit from, and uh, we will talk to you very, very soon.